Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Punnett Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And today's episode, in many senses, is a long time coming. My guest today was on DPS almost a year ago now, talking to us about her book, Birth Strike, The Hidden Fight Over Women's Rights. It was an incredibly fascinating story of, of population decline due to the inability of women to afford the cost and the responsibility of raising children. And it was a real clarion call for a lot of the things that are now incredibly popular on the socialist left, universal provision of social goods. And it connected the struggle for women's rights in many ways to broader struggles for socialist politics, something that we haven't seen a whole lot in the, in the last 30 years due to various policies, uh, neoliberal feminism, and all of these other types of concepts that people will be familiar with. And we will be spelling those out in great detail over the course of today's discussion of her latest book, which is about the abortion rights movement proper. Uh, it goes all the way back to the 1800s and contextualizes the history of abortion provision and restriction. It's called Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now. Jenny Brown, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. So you introduced this book on DPS about nine or 10 months ago, and I'm really excited that it's out. We were just talking off air. There hasn't been a book written like this in nearly 30 years, and even then, uh, the the tracts and the treatises are kind of sparse and and, and kind of distributed among clique, uh, you know, clique activist networks. This is broadly available, uh, and it's a really important time. Give us a, a general pitch for why we need a book like this. If anything, people on the progressive left and even the liberal left are pretty confident in their support of abortion and abortion rights, reproductive rights, and all the rest of it. Why do we need a book like this now? Well, reproductive rights and abortion in particular have been, um, they've sort of been separated out from other left demands. And I think um, one of the things that we need to do is put it back squarely in the in the left wheelhouse. We are, you know, abortion, you could even say, is our right to strike against bad reproductive working conditions. And I think that framing it that way is a, is a, is a new and interesting way to look at it in a in a period where where we really are just continuing to have these stale arguments about when life begins whether religious people can be convinced that abortion rights are okay in certain circumstances we've really gotten we it's really gotten pretty um pretty bad uh, and i think the only time that we really had a good discussion about reproductive rights and how it fits into all of this stuff is when we start talking about reproductive justice which you know was is a phrase coined by African-American women in response to the Hillary Clinton's health care reform in the 90s, which was about to jettison uh, reproductive rights and re- and get rid of abortion in an attempt to curry favor with Republicans. And, uh, and this particular group of women of African descent met at a conference in Chicago and decided that we needed to have a whole new framework of, for talking about this stuff. So that's where I think the insurgency has basically come from. But it also comes from the original struggle around abortion rights in the 1960s in the women's liberation movement where you know we had a, a movement for getting abortion reform you know which which was a lot of professionals trying to um loosen the law because they saw the carnage that the law had created but they weren't really looking at it from the perspective of of women's freedom or women's right to control our bodies so they approached it the way professionals do, which is to try to triangulate, create exceptions to the laws. For example, if you were raped, you wouldn't have to have the resulting child. Um, 
And they bumped along for, for about 20 years in the post-war period until the women's liberation movement came along and said, you know, all of these reforms that you're suggesting are really not going to do us any good. Most of us, you know, need need abortion because we don't want to have a kid right now. And mm-hmm. uh, and so that that whole debate is sort of being replayed now, 50 years later, when we're hearing, oh, well, you know, Planned Parenthood only does, you know, a few abortions. It it encourages people not to get them. Mm-hmm. There are even ads like this, sort of the very apologetic, professional-led um, movement that we're seeing right now. And we need to get back to the connection to the freedom movement, which is which is our strongest argument in the abortion case. You might even say in the in the post-war era, the the uh, abortion reform movement had a plan for that. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> All the little incremental um, suggestions. Yes, we're very, we're very familiar with these now in the, in the presidential campaign. But they have that's been right, these right. incremental suggestions have really infected the abortion, the abortion, right. And you know, I mean, Planned Parenthood is under attack, the independent clinics, which do most abortions are under attack. And so they, they have been trying to defend themselves the best way they know how, but they are that is based on a misunderstanding of the history. We didn't win abortion rights by demanding less and being having a good lobbying strategy. We, we won abortion rights by having a mass movement out in the streets, demanding full women's freedom on all a whole range of things, not just abortion. That, you know, and it, and it wasn't by being, you know, having a smart legal argument. It was by having a mass movement. That's right. So just more about your personal history, your background, the politics, the ideology, the strategies that you adhere to for some of our audience, because some some people on the left are are rightly skeptical, I think, of certain strands of feminist politics. And so I just want to clarify exactly that for, uh, for the audience. You are also uh, on the staff of National Women's Liberation, very proudly representing uh, many of the currents that you write about in, in this book and in your earlier book. You were also co-authored uh, a book for Labor Notes, a collection called How to Jumpstart Your Union. So this is very much in the tradition of proud class struggle unionism, provisioning of social goods, uh, maybe perhaps even class struggle social democracy of the of the variant that is uh, so far, you know, having a lot of success in the UK with Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders and and, and otherwise. This debate that you you write about between uh, reform versus repeal maps on quite uh, quite well, I would say. With some minor caveats, with the the uh, means tested versus universal programs debates that we're seeing play out today, you know we saw just last week Pete Buttigieg went after Medicare for all, went after universal uh, higher education, arguing that you know we shouldn't be paying for billionaires' kids to go to college. These kind of tired, hackish slogans uh, that come from yeah, the right. Yeah, so uh, uh, name me one billionaire that's sending their uh, their kid to a, a state school. You know, give me a break. <laughs> right, right. I mean, not only is it just factually incorrect, it's just mealy-mouthed. But we're seeing these things play out time and time again. And I want to dig into Roe versus Wade and the weakness there. We saw this kind of flare up a couple of years ago with the Kavanaugh hearings. Uh, and it's going to flare up again um, after uh, you know Ruth Bader Ginsburg, her health is is kind of touch and go here and there. We may very well see another justice installed by, by the Trump administration. And so this is definitely going to loom large in coming months uh, everybody knock on wood, uh, you know, I don't know, donate your bone marrow to RBG. I hate to sound like a lib here, Jenny, but you know, what else, what other choice do we have? Well, I think at this point they, they have a, uh, an anti-abortion majority on the court. Um, yeah. the question yeah. is, is there going to be enough, um, action in the streets that makes them nervous, you know, nervous enough that they, they back down on completely gutting Roe, which is, 
you know, there this this Louisiana case is one where um, where if they do require admitting privileges to hospitals for doctors that work in clinics, that is going to pretty much destroy abortion rights in across the South, except in big urban areas. So, so and and we can they already have the votes for that, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's very, very point well taken. It's very much in keeping with your uh, struggle from below uh, argument here in this book. So let's back up here. Um, let's get to the basics. One of the things I really appreciated about this book, and everybody should go out and buy it. I mean, everybody here, you're thinking to yourself, well, of course I support abortion. What do I need to buy a book about abortion for? I learned a tremendous amount in this book, and I know you will too. And and it really, it, I learned a tremendous amount about things that I didn't ex- anticipate reading in this book. And it's very much in line with that proud tradition that you are a part of. You represent of consciousness raising about abortion, up to and including describing an abortion for your readers, which I mean. You, you don't you don't read that in the New York Times about you know the the specifics of getting an abortion how kind yes, of work work a day it is as a, as a, a basic uh, non invasive medical procedure yeah it's a basic basically a five minute surgical procedure people don't hear that that you know it's it's so fraught with the politics and the regulations and everything it just seems really rarefied but but it's 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 pretty basic and you know it it was it was legal upon the founding of the uh, the United States and has was legal. For a hundred years until it was banned completely in 1873 as part of the Comstock law, along with all contraception and, and any information about sex and sex education. And so we have, we have a proud history of having legal abortion. And then we have a hundred years of, of abortion going underground. So we, we, we have a lot of history in this country of that struggle. Mm-hmm. Let's. Uh, this is a bit of a of a, a, divi- a diversion. I'm, I'm a history nerd, history buff myself. Uh, I, I presume mo- much of my audience is as well, so they'll enjoy this. Who was this? Who was this? Uh, this old boy Comstock. <laughs> he was uh, one of the one of the super villains in American history that almost nobody knows about, but they should, and they should spit every time you know they say his name. Uh, it, who, who was Comstock, and what, what was he responsible for when it comes to reproductive rights? Yeah, he was the head of the New York Committee for the Suppression of Vice, and then he became sort of the national prude in chief when he when he um, managed to get this law passed that named him Postal General to uh, basically he could ban anything going through the mails. So he, but he did it from this New York perch. You know, he was part of this purity crusade in the post Civil War period, and his aim was clearly to increase. Um, increase white Anglo-Saxon Protestant births, but it was also very much against uh, the the people who were providing a lot of the abortion care at that point, which were uh, basically women, women practitioners mostly, who weren't, uh, you know, who weren't credentialed, but were very skilled. And so, um, so he, he, but the thing about this is that the main opposition to abortion was not in the 1840s and 1850s, there was not a lot of opposition to abortion, and and it started really becoming um, becoming prominent when the medical profession, which at the time was sort of trying to form itself up as a profession and exclude people who weren't part of that uh, credential class, they really wanted to hit their their competition hard, and the their main competition was was lay practitioners who who did abortions. In fact, abortion is thought of as the first medical specialty by some. Historians, so so they spent um, the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s trying to get the clergy and the newspapers and everybody else, politicians, to try to come out against abortion, and nobody re- was really interested. They didn't really care. 
um, until the post-war period where it became clear that married women were, were using abortion to control their family size. Previously, you know, doctors had seen a lot of women who maybe had gotten pregnant outside of marriage, and they knew that it would ruin their lives if they had to have the child. So they, they were somewhat sympathetic, but um, they were not sympathetic to women who wanted to, um, you know, have a role in the world other than just bearing one kid after another. And the, the birth rate had gone down in, in 1800. It was an average of eight children per woman. And by 1900, it was an average of four children per woman. So they, this uh, drop was was very visible by the 1870s. And they were able to also uh, leverage anti-Catholic sentiment. They, you know, they thought that Catholic immigrants were going were gonna to outbreed them. Does this sound familiar? And so uh, they were, the, you know, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's ironic that anti-Catholic sentiment was one of the, uh, one of the things that brought in the anti-abortion law, but that's actually actually true. And then they were able to get newspapers and, and, uh, and various, um, you know, select committees of various legislatures to, to really crack down. And the Comstock law in 1873 was really the culmination of that. You know, they, in a lot of histories, he's sort of regarded as this freakishly effective individual prude who made these arguments and suddenly everybody saw the light. But but if you look at the history, many states were already cracking down on abortion by the time the Comstock Law happened. It was very much um, the culmination of a long-term project to prevent women from controlling their own reproduction. There's a book on this as well that I've read. Uh, I found a lot of resonances with your own. Uh, it's called Sex in the Civil War by Judith Giesberg, a proper, histori- proper historian, academic historian. But uh, it's a short book. It's accessible for people who are interested in this period. It mostly focuses on pornography and the banishment thereof uh, following the Civil War and, and Reconstruction. But but it really touches on this this uh, this moment of Reconstruction, how it was it, it birthed new forms of scientific understanding and cultural compromises, consensus, that, that various forms of consensus that, that uh, emerged out of that period. And uh, absolutely, the positions on abortion were very much a part of this turn to prudishness. But you talk a lot about in your book about the management of populations. And there's so there's some real kind of basic like, you know, uh, nuts and bolts, historical materialism that, that has to come into play here to understand how this plays out. Like, talk to us a little bit about that. What was happening in the, in the 18, late 1800s, early 1900s? that made people so concerned about controlling women's bodies and their reproductive choices? Well, for one thing, um, I think people think that, you know, since year zero, the Catholic position has been that, that abortion is, is murder. But that, that position actually, abortion was a sin. It was mostly related, you know, you had to do penance. It was, but it was mostly related to whether or not you had informed your husband um, and, it was not regarded as murder until 1869, when when the Pope uh, released an, uh, an encyclical that that uh, said that it was murder. Um, and the the background for that is that the largest Catholic country in Europe, France, had been experiencing an extreme population decline um, for the previous century and a half, and it was. Um, you know, there were a lot of reasons for that, but the church was very alarmed about it. And um, the other thing that was happening is embryology was becoming was becoming more clear that there was a um, there was no bright dividing line between um, the moment that uh, a, a baby becomes a person, because the Catholic doctrine up to till then had been, you know, 
starts out sort of with a vegetable soul, then it develops into an animal soul, and then it develops a human soul at the moment of quickening, which is when when you can hear, feel the fetus move, which is around the fourth month. So um, before that, it wasn't regarded as abortion. It was just regarded as get, bringing your period back or unblocking your period. But again, the population issues were also uh, very live in the United States. As I mentioned, they were, uh, you know, very worried about immigration and being, you know, being overrun by by foreign stock as they as they conceptualized it. And they were also worried about women having their independent lives. I mean, the the women's rights movement, which is what you know thought of as being founded in 1848 with the Declaration of Seneca Falls, was bumping along and demanding women have, to have property rights and to have control of their children and all of the different things that that women basically were legally dead. They did not have independent independent existence outside fathers and husbands, and so they were trying to um, trying to change that. And as they did that, this of course caused um, a lot of consternation among among the um, the the fathers of the society, right? Who who were losing control, losing some of their control. So that is also a, a factor um, along with the population, which is very much related to that, because women were actually controlling their their family size and deciding to not go through just every pregnancy that came along. And if you can imagine, first of all, there's no anesthetic for, um, for having a baby at the time. I mean, they very, they very much had early on, they start with, with ether, but it's really not, it's really only for the rich and it really isn't that effective. Uh, so you're having these, it's childbirth is extremely dangerous. It's extremely painful. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's something that women were having a pause about. Should I, should I do this again? I mean, they knew people in their families who had died from childbirth. They knew, you know, and then the exhaustion of taking care of child after child after child. I mean, my maternal grandmother was in a, a family where she, her four siblings died before the age of two. She was the only one that survived. So infant mortality and child mortality was very high at the time. I mean, it's, it, it's hard for us to conceptualize now just what, life was like but you can imagine that that people very you know wanted to be able to control that part of their lives and so that was that was the struggle that was what the struggle was over mm-hmm, mm-hmm. one of the things that i learned the most uh, i think in this book and hadn't really looked into this his- history and i have uh, that pesky thing called male privilege where, where in this sense it's very it's as real as it gets <laughs> that male privilege stuff here with when it comes to abortion and the experience thereof um uh, this this notion of quickening has an interesting history, and it's something that really uh, infects. Uh, maybe not, I'll start to say maybe too strongly. No, it, it certainly infects our discourse. The way that we think about pregnancy and abortion rights and abortion access, and the way that a lot of progressives will equivocate with anti-abortionists in terms of, well, you know, that second trimester, ooh, it gets a little icky there, doesn't it? You know, and, and, and we're really, uh, you know, calling back to the days of uh, of Aquinas, and, you know, and and, and early you know, Catholic doctrine of of quickening that is uh, about souls and 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 oddly kind of um, oddly selective religious doctrines. Yes, uh, yeah, right. Exp- explain that to both me and our audience, people who who are, are certainly not as familiar with that. Well, so quickening is uh, around the fourth month, um, and it's. Uh, it's when the pregnant person can feel the fetus move. So the laws that were um, 
that said that abortion was legal up to quickening or wasn't even counted really as abortion up until quickening really depended on the woman's report. So you can say that abortion was essentially legal in the United States um, from the founding of the country to the 1860s and 1870s when some states started to ban it and then 1873 it becomes banned completely. You know, this this doctrine is handed down for a long time, but the the real the thing I think that is important to understand now is that most people who are having abortions at at that point in their pregnancy are having them because they couldn't afford to get an abortion earlier, which you could solve by making abortion free, or there's some disaster in the pregnancy. And and many people, when surveyed, say, well, I was trying to get an abortion earlier, but all the obstacles and the difficulties made it impossible. So a lot of the abortions that were um, that are so concerning to the right, right, that are so worrisome, and even to some liberals who, th- who think abortion should be generally legal, but frown upon it, are created by the very policies that are, you know, that they support that are making it more and more difficult for people to get abortions when they need them. There's kind of, there's an irony there that, you know, this sort of not robust defense of abortion and sort of the mealy mouth stuff around it is really resulting in a lot more abortion, later, you know, so-called later abortions, second trimester abortions. And then there is a whole category, which are most of the second trimester abortions, where there's something terribly wrong. Um, there's a health crisis, but that is a tiny percentage of abortions. And to defend abortion on that basis is really ignoring the massive amount of abortions that people are having just because they want to control whether or not they have a kid. And so I think it's kind of the wrong way to go when we when we sort of start to debate about this. You know, these this tiny percentage of abortions which are based on a health crisis. That's really taking our eye off the ball, which is that we, you know, we really need abortion as a backup to birth control. Birth control often doesn't work. Sometimes we don't use birth control. Does that mean we should have a child right then? You know, um, how are women going to have equality and freedom without controlling this very basic part of our lives? Right. Yeah. Let's talk briefly about who are the people, types of people who get abortions, really demystifying that uh, classification of, of people, approximately 30% of women uh, in, in America. Is it America or across the world? I'm not quite sure. We'll end up getting abortions. Um, and that, that number, that figure has been static since at least the mid-1800s. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, they, as near as medical historians can tell, between 20 and 25% of women have, have gotten abortions in throughout U.S. history, whether it was legal or illegal. The figure is now between one in three and one in four. So basically it's 30% of women get abortions. And I think a lot of people are surprised to learn that a majority of those people are already parents. They're already taking care of a child. Catholics have the same rate of abortion as everybody else. Uh, You know, I mean, um, young women, uh, that is people who are 18 and under and have to get their parents' permission form a, you know, a not insubstantial, but small percentage of people who get abortions. I mean, I think it's often thought that the young are getting most of them. That's really not true. But they are burdened with laws in most states requiring that they either notify their parents or get consent. For example, in Florida, it's a notification law. They're trying to create a consent law, but the notification law. But the thing is, you have to notify your parents 48 hours in advance. So for most young people, it's, you know, your parents could stop you if they knew about it 48 hours in advance, if they disapproved. So that's, 
that's the kind of stuff that people are facing. And, you know, one thing that's very, um, you know, there are a lot of judgments against people who, oh, you were using abortion for birth control. Well, first of all, technically abortion is birth control. It's the most pure form of birth control that exists. But trying to separate abortion and birth control out from each other has been a losing strategy because they've always risen and fallen together legally. You know, the Comstock law banned all abortion and all birth control, um, all forms of contraception, all information about it. You couldn't send it through the mails. Your doctor could not advise you on it. It was a complete ban on free speech on the issue. And then when we won some level of abortion rights with Roe v. Wade in 1973, it was only a year after the Eisenstadt v. Baird decision, which was the decision that allowed uh, unmarried people to get birth control advice from their doctors. I mean, you know, we when we win both of them, we win both of them together. And then we're seeing right now attacks on birth control as well as abortion, whether or not your insurance will cover it. That was... Uh, the topic of, of a couple of Supreme Court cases. And then there are all these moves among anti-abortion pharmacists to not prescribe the pill, and IUDs are being charged with being uh, possibly uh, causing abortions. So then there, you know, their states are providing conscience clauses where doctors and pharmacists don't have to provide these things. That's also true of the morning after pill, which is after sex contraception. So they're trying to expand and enlarge the number of things that are counted as abortion, like IUDs and the morning after pill, in order to ban them. And we can see that this is clearly not just about the life of a fetus, because in these cases, they are really trying to ban birth control. And if you ban birth control, obviously, you increase abortion. So clearly, there's another thing going on here. And I think that other thing that's going on is that we have a record low birth rate in the United States right now. And... Uh, that is causing a lot of consternation among the ruling elite who would really prefer us to have a higher birth rate. They would like, they, uh, you know, capitalist economic growth is based on the growth of the population in many cases. And they're very worried about Japanification, as they call it, which is sort of a, a economic stagnation due to a birth rate that is not replacing the population. And the Japanese population is actually going down at this point. And then we have the whole debate around immigration, which which has been the substitute for low birth rates in the United States for many decades. But it is, you know, it's a, a place where the um, Republican Party is split on it. You know, obviously, employers want immigration. They don't want immigrants to have rights, mind you. They just want immigrants to be um, here and without any rights, which, you know, the ultimate version of that is the guest worker programs. And so that's causing a lot of uh, debate within within the the employing class, and so we're seeing we're seeing that you know it'd be easier for them to to uh, just force us to have kids, and you know in uh, in other countries where we've where we've had lower birth rates, the government often comes in with things to make it easier, like childcare and healthcare and paid leave and um, shorter working hours for everybody, uh, lots of paid vacation, housing subsidies free school through college, all of these things. But here, you know, the, the rich don't want to pay for any of that stuff. So so instead, what we're getting is more intense politics around birth control and abortion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's all connected in a really organic way. Pardon the interruption, everybody, but this is the point of the program where I ask that if you are enjoying what you're hearing today, if you want to support the politics that are brought to you on a weekly basis on Dead Pundit Society, that you become a patron. 
You can do that by heading over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and hitting that subscribe button at a level at which you are comfortable. All of our subscribers will receive access to our B-sides. They're going to come out on a semi-regular basis. Additionally, there's a new weekly segment that I'm launching called In Case You Missed It, I-C-Y-M-I for short. And in that feature, I'm going to bring you audio from across space and time. It's going to feature uh, YouTube videos, other interviews, other lectures that I find to be instrumental in addressing some of the most important kind of theoretical, historical, and educational aspects of today's left. In past weeks, I have brought you a presentation, a lecture given by Adolf Reed and Cornell West. And then last week, I brought the patrons a lecture by Vivek Chibber on imperialism and orientalism and social change. It was really, really fantastic stuff. So sure, you could scour the internet for days and weeks and months and years and find this content, but I'm bringing it to you. I'm curating it. Hand-selected by the dead pundit himself for my patrons, so you all are not going to want to miss that benefit. And I'll just come out and say it. One of the things that my patrons do not get is a weekly guaranteed subscriber-only episode. And why is that? Is it because I'm lazy? Is it because I hate money? (laughs) I can guarantee you that if I brought you a subscriber-only episode every week, that my patron count would probably go up by about 100%. But aside from being a guy who apparently just makes terrible business decisions, I didn't get into podcasting in order to put everything up behind a paywall. I wanted to talk to some of the most important and influential people out there on the left in order to get this message out to the masses. And you cannot get a message to the masses if you're just going to put half of your content behind a paywall. So, no disrespect to the podcasts out there who do that, but I am just not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I might be shooting myself in the foot. So prove me wrong. (laughs) Prove that it isn't a terrible business decision to make all of my content free, or as much of the content as possible free, by going to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits. Prove the solidarity is alive and well by supporting this project. I really do appreciate subscribers past and present. I know money is tight, but if we don't support independent left media, it will go away. All right, enough of the pitch for today. Please enjoy the remainder of my interview with Jenny Brown. It's good to see this book and this kind of these kind of politics reemerging, or at least, you know, you're, you're working your ass off trying to bring these politics back into into the mainstream um, in, in the midst of this kind of broader socialist struggle that you just laid out there that would be yeah. required. And I should say that the, the group I'm in, National Women's Liberation and, and um, our allied group, Red Stockings, you know, they represent the, um, the early wave of, of women's liberation before it was watered down and, and made uh, into a sort of a liberal, a liberal cause rather than a liberation movement. And, you know, the, the folks that started the women's liberation movement were all on the left. They were, um, they had either been in the new left, the anti-war movement, they had been, uh, grassroots workers in the civil rights movement, risking their livelihoods, risking their lives. Um, and they saw women's liberation as a new, an, a way to expand the number of people who were in the revolutionary movement, in the, um, radical movement, in the movement for freedom. So they saw that as, uh, you know, as advancing, as advancing the general cause of the movement as well as their specific demands within it. And that, that version of women's liberation has really been buried. It was already being buried in the mid seventies. 
and uh, sort of media stars like Gloria Steinem and Ms. Magazine became the face of women's liberation, um, and it was a toned-down, much less radical version of it. So I think, you know, a lot of what I'm doing in this book is recovering some of that history and, and showing that the way that we won abortion rights to the extent that we did in the United States originally was through a radical movement, and as soon as we took that liberal turn and the radicals were were buried, we the result was that we started to see rollbacks, and we've been seeing rollbacks ever since. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's turn now. That's a really great tra- moment to transition here, or just to take on Roe v. Wade directly head on here. This is a real juicy nugget. I've been trying to have an episode uh, that's kind of historically and politically and broadly informed, not just from a pure legalistic perspective. Hell, ever since I started EBS, uh, going on three years now. So let's do that. Let's do that here. And I think it's a really great cautionary tale for the kind of strategy that some, I think, well-intentioned leftists and progressives are arguing for today, which is that, sure, you have a mass movement on the streets and the, and the Bernie wave and the kind of progressive uh, socialist wave that that has uh, you know st- started to crest. Hopefully, it hasn't crested, but uh, it's still growing in the United States and elsewhere. And and therefore, what we need to do is bring in somebody like an Elizabeth Warren who can translate that broad sentiment into more palatable half measures that we can build on later. And that one of those half measures look no further uh, than Roe v. Wade. There's a there's a lesson for us. There's a case study of what it looks like to have mass struggle translated into a more palatable half measure, if you could even call it that. So uh, lay out that history for us. It's really fascinating. So Roe is based on the New York law that was won by Res Dockings and other feminists in the 60s. By 1970, abortion was essentially legal in New York. And when it went to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court actually dithered and dithered around it for, for a couple of years. And they they were looking for a way to calm the demands and one of the things that was going on at the time, of course, it, we were in the middle of the Cold War, and abortion was legal throughout the socialist world. In fact, people could go from the United States to Poland. If they had the money to get to Poland, they could get an abortion for $10 in Poland. Yeah, um, I enjoyed that little nugget. Yeah. Uh, what an embarrassment all, uh, to American exceptionalism. Right, exactly. And people, you know... So while there was this debate in the about you know what system provided more freedom socialism or capitalism women were going behind the iron curtain to actually get abortions and so it was kind of embarrassing so there's that and then there was this massive women's liberation movement in the streets demanding equal pay demanding childcare demanding a bunch of things both liberal and radical including um full repeal of all abortion laws so in the middle of this this case of this this Texas woman who wanted to get an abortion and, and couldn't comes before the court and they dither and they wander around and finally what they they settle on the privacy this sort of concept of privacy that they had dug up it's not really in the constitution but they you know they sort of made it this is what the Supreme Court does when a social movement makes a demand on it they find something in that they can that they can hang their hat on, and in their 1965 de- decision, Griswold versus Connecticut, they had made it legal for married people to get uh, access to birth control, and so and they based that on privacy. So um, with Roe, they again based it on privacy, but they did they did say, you know, governments have had a um, had the right to control their populations for uh, you know in eternity, and so. Um, 
we don't want to we don't want to um, really mess with that. However, we do think that in the first trimester you should be able to get an abortion, and states can't burden that right. And then in the second trimester they can burden it a bit, and in the third trimester it just can be um, they can burden it a lot, <laughs> right? Yep, basically, yep, yep. Um, basically, unless it's uh, a, an issue of your life, there you know states can make a bunch of regulations. So. That was the basic decision, and then there were a couple of decisions after that that no, you didn't need to get your husband's permission. And so, and uh, one of the good things about Roe is that they also said that you can't require um, residency in a state to be able to get abortion, um, and that's been that was very important because New York had had become the place that everyone was going to get abortions because it had the best law. So they saw that there would be issues if if states sort of race there was a be a race to the bottom. Um, so that's that's an important part of Roe that I think is probably going to also be messed with if they want to mess with our rights without completely vacating Roe. They can mess with that. They can mess with whether or not doctors are required to do certain things like have admitting privileges. And then the, they what they have been doing, they have been um, rolling back these protections ever since. And the, f- the first really bad rollback was that they allowed the federal government to, um, to, although it was paying for births under Medicaid, would not pay for abortions under Medicaid. And that's the Hyde Amendment, which also bans, um, bans any federal funds. So, so Indian Health Service, uh, federal prisons, the military, and most importantly, Medicaid, because it covers the most people. So, Essentially, we we and that uh, went through in in seventy uh, five. Ford refused to sign it. It became an issue in the nineteen seventy six Ford and Carter election. Carter, the Democrats, staked out a position to sign Hyde, and he did that after he was elected. So the Democrat Republican breakdown was still not clear <laughs> at that point. There were still pro choice uh, Republicans and anti. Uh, we still have uh, anti-abortion Democrats, but there were still people in the Republican Party who were pro-choice at that point, including including uh, Gerald Ford. So that's a little bit of the history of that. And I think the important thing to understand is that it was not that there was a brilliant legal argument, although I'm sure there was a brilliant legal argument. It was the political situation. The other thing that was happening is that we had the highest birth rate in decades um, in the 60s and the baby boom went on much longer than it had in other countries. So there was actually panic on the part of the ruling class about high population growth rates. And you can see this in in some of the things that they wrote. In fact, uh, George H.W. Bush was uh, very concerned about about overpopulation and and was a big supporter of birth control and he supported the Roe decision. Um, by 1980, when the birth rate is has dropped considerably, you know he joins uh, the Ronald Reagan ticket and uh, is takes an anti-abortion position, which is which was very contrary to to his previous his previous position. So you can see the turn in ruling thought about this sort of happen right in the mid 70s when they when they realized that as a result of uh, availability of the birth control pill and as a result of um, abortion, that the birth rate had suddenly dropped. Um, and that became visible by 75. So 
So those are the, that's kind of the context. And I think people generally think, oh, well, it was, it was the great legal argument that really nailed it. But I, much more important was the political context. Yeah. Yeah. As usual, that's, that's, uh, it's an important, it's important contribution, but uh, none of us should be surprised by that at this point that we have to make this argument in the midst of this kind of neoliberal onslaught with respect to Roe fetishization. And we should defend Roe and we'll talk more about that towards the end of our discussion here, but let's get to, uh, I, I want to kind of historicize this a little bit because this is all, this is really fascinating to me. It's one of the, the troubles that I have with <laughs> so much of the discourse on the left being, being determined and staked out by lawyers these days, people with legal training and, uh, you know, no, no disrespect to the lawyers out there, but, uh, you all need to think a little harder about this. Uh, but <laughs> there are a lot of podcasters and media types of people who have law backgrounds as well. And I see this constantly, but if you look at the way that Roe is staked out, the strategy that they did take on Roe, it was, it was, uh, it was on account of the way that, uh, precedent had developed since this period that we discussed earlier in our in the discussion in our interview uh, since since that of reconstruction where uh, it, it, the state uh, was was made the argument that they had the legitimate responsibility to maintain the sanctity or the purity or the you know the the, the numeracy of their population um, and that was how abortion was was regulated on on that basis and so Roe operates and these other kind of reform movements operate on account of that precedent. And what the what the repeal movement does, they say fuck all of that. Uh it was wrong then. <laughs> the justification in, in, in the 1870s was wrong. It was wrong then. It was wrong in the 19 teens. It was wrong in the 1950s and it's wrong now. So we pr- we propose a blank page. Talk to us about the blank page uh strategy because I think that's really brilliant in an era where we need to start thinking more about just eradicating all of the, these kind of centuries of of absurd and ridiculous precedents. Yeah, I mean, what we really need to go for is to take it completely out of the criminal code. So a repeal decision from the Supreme Court would look like something like, you know, Congress and the states can make no laws regarding abortion. Now, the repeal strategy came directly out of consciousness raising because it was in the middle of all these debates about, well, if you had had five children, would you be allowed an abortion? What if you were raped? What if you couldn't prove it? What about if you, um, it was a case of incest or uh, you were very ill? How ill would you need to be? All of these debates. And consciousness raising, which um, was developed by the women's liberation movement out of the idea from civil rights of tell it like it is, where people talked about racist experiences. Basically, women sat around and talked about their experiences, and many of them had had abortions illegally. Some had had, had snuck through with the very narrow exceptions and gotten abortions because they were suicidal or some other exception like that. But most people had gotten them illegally, had paid an enormous amount of money, had in many cases gotten infections, uh, were blindfolded, you know, in the middle, as, as one of them said, in the citadel of democracy, we were blindfolded and uh, stuck in the back of a car, not knowing where we were being taken. And then once the procedure is done, they blindfolded you again. That's because doctors were afraid of being identified and and it was not cops were not above going to your hospital bed when you were in the throes of a very serious infection and might die and trying to extract from you any information that they could get about who was the doctor and and if you refused to uh participate in that um interrogation you could be jailed as soon as you were healthy enough to be dragged off to jail 
this happened. Um, so anyway, people were, were doing consciousness raising about this and they thought all these reform laws that are being, reforms to the law that are being suggested, none of these are going to help us, you know, and then I should say also people were having kids when they couldn't find somebody to do the abortion, um, kids that they didn't want and were, um, and it was very disruptive to their lives. For example, they would be kicked out of college if they were pregnant. So all of these things that the humiliating experiences that people were, were describing to each other, they realized, first, I'm not the only person who went through this. We're all going through this. And let's, let's demand what we really want, which is repeal of all of the laws. And so the, um, in New York, and as I mentioned, the New York law um, was, was the model for Roe. In New York, they demanded um, full repeal of all of the laws, just get it out of the criminal code. And, and one of the groups, uh, New Yorkers for Abortion Law Repeal, um, put out a flyer which was, this is our model abortion law, and it was a blank page. Um, you know, just to make clear, you know, for, uh, for repeal, you don't need a pencil, but you need an eraser. And immediately, repeal became so popular that even the reformers started to call their bills repeal. So it became very confusing. And we've seen, like, theft of language before, but this this was a really this was a really great example of it. So, abortion law repeal became the generic term that the press used for any kind of abortion reform proposals, basically confusing everybody. And the radicals tried to, you know, tried to explain what was going on and that what we were we were not getting what we really wanted either in the New York law and then later in Roe we were not getting what we wanted. And what we want is, you know, why is a pregnancy outcome, which could be a miscarriage, could be an abortion, could be a birth. Um, why is that subject to criminal codes? Why do the courts and the police and jails have to be uh, brought to bear on on something that's a, a biological process that should be controlled by the person who's having the having the pregnancy? So um, that's that's really, I think, what we need to go for. And that was the original demand that got us the reform. If we had gone for less, we would have gotten much less. It's interesting how the kind of co-optation of repeal by liberal reformers, reformists, uh, maps onto what you see today with Medicare for all and some of these other sort of more universal policies, I think. But in those days, uh, what that did was it was a double-edged sword in a negative direction, it seems, the story that you tell. On the one hand, uh, the the radicals uh, were unable to make their case for what could have been a, a winning strategy, for sure, um, because they were sort of drowned out by the liberals in many cases. And then, of course, the liberals who were who were calling their reforms repeal uh, only made their you know their their positions all the more controversial in the eyes of the the pearl clutchers and the and the men who wanted to regulate women's bodies and, and so on and so forth. Uh, apologies for the gendered notion of there. Wasn't mostly the pearl clutchers, was it, Adam? <laughs> mostly the men uh, wearing lab doctor's coats and uh, sitting behind, uh, you know, ben on benches and in courtrooms. Uh, but I digress. Um, talk to us about that, that kind of winning strategy that you argue for in, in the book. Uh, it's a kind of lost history, a, a missed opportunity in, sen in some senses. What what caused that opportunity to to recede, and and, and why did you argue that it was uh, such a winning strategy? Well, I argue it was a winning strategy because before the the old strategy had been used for twenty years, and what it had resulted in is a few states that allowed if you could get two shrinks to agree that you were suicidal, 
or if you had um, could prove that you had been raped, um, it allowed you to get an abortion, but nothing else. That was the that was the the fruits of that method of struggle. When the women's liberation movement came in and demanded repeal, very quickly the law fell. Now, I there are other things that are going on there. Of, of course, the birth rate and and various other other um, you know the the position of the Cold War. But it is still true that we need to um, we need to go for what we really want. We need to demand what we want. And the the strategy is basically that you can't get a mass of people interested in supporting something if it doesn't apply to them. And this was the situation. I think we can we can see a really good example of this in in Ireland in 2018, where they won uh, repeal of their abortion law. Um, they had been that movement had been bumping along for years, trying to get basically loosen up the law, and and there it included you know getting it so only one psychiatrist would would be um, required to certify that you were suicidal so you could get an abortion. It wasn't until 2015 or 2016 when feminists in Dublin started um, started demanding the full the full thing, free, safe, legal abortion, that the movement grew and started to really have numbers that the politicians could not ignore. And they uh, they named their movement the the abortion rights campaign. They used the word abortion. Everyone said, "Oh, that'll scare people off." It yeah. didn't. It attracted yeah. people because yeah. they knew what it was about. Yeah, it was Often a Catholic country, used- it was argued, right? I mean, for people who don't know the kind of cultural conservatism that, that at least is said to prevail in, in Ireland. Yeah, and, you know, oh, you need to tread carefully, etc. But this one group of feminists started demonstrating with their with this very clear demand, free, safe, legal, the, na- the abortion rights campaign, and that was what forced the hand of the of the politicians to actually start considering rather than considering a few more exceptions to the law considering actually getting rid of the law and they were successful they got 66% of the vote they were very um they were very surprised that they did so well actually but it sort of proves that if you don't go for what you really want if you go for these smaller demands you might get some of them but then what have you won you haven't won what you need and i think that's also been true with the with medicare for all medicare for some medicare for a few you know, we have we have not been demanding. Now we are, and th- thanks to uh, the the efforts of a lot of wonderful organizers that I've I've been involved with this campaign for twenty years to get to get national healthcare in the United States. And um, you know, we have doggedly been pursuing this in the face of media, which constantly lies about what we're demanding. I remember that uh, Healthcare Now, which was leading the struggle for Medicare for all at one point. Suddenly, a group was founded with you know money from nowhere called Healthcare for America Now, which was pushing the public option. And when we were having the debate around Obamacare, so um, you know we see these sort of uh, these false front organizations that are trying to water us down frequently come to the fore, and it's very similar to what happened with the repeal. Yeah, yeah. So much to say. Let's continue on here with uh, let's let's finish up here with a couple of of real uh, key uh, themes, key arguments. As as we say, uh, you know, we're just one heartbeat away. Not to get too uh, you know morbid or inhum- inhumane about this, talking about the the life of of a person, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Supreme Court Justice. That is, uh, but we're one heartbeat away from this being uh, you know a headline for the next several months. Um, Roe. 
this was up in the air in a new way with the installation of Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh, and it will be with us for a while. Uh, it's very difficult to get principled radical socialist opinions, views about this with the kind of liberal and neoliberal onslaught of the, the feminist perspective there. What's your take on Roe? What do we do about it? Well, I mean, it's sort of not what we do. That's going to be, that's going to be the court, right? What we do is um, we respond with a, with the demand for what we really want, which is um, I think the same as in Ireland. We want it free, safe, and legal, but we also don't want it in the criminal code at all. And so in a couple of states, we've been able to almost achieve that. New York and Oregon now have, uh, have moved a lot of the law into the health code. And that has come from forthrightly demanding it. And so, but, but our strategy needs to be to base it on women's freedom, not these various, you know, exceptions to the law, because that is how it has been trimmed back. So, so Roe set a standard that has been eroded and watered down by most of the subsequent uh, decisions starting starting in 1989 um, and there have been there have been several which have basically allowed states to burden our rights to the point that is very difficult for a lot of people to get abortions especially if you're in a rural area especially if you don't have money and uh, especially if you're in the south so so we have we already have um, you know, Roe is already dead. And the idea that we are defending the situation that we have now, we won't go back, you know, all of this language around that, what we have now is completely unacceptable. There are, you know, people go to uh, the one clinic left in Mississippi and turn out to be one day over the, uh, the cutoff that Mississippi has required. And then they have to drive four hours to another clinic in another state and come up with, you know, $1,500. I mean, it's just not, that's not a right. <laughs> that's something that is, um, is now so difficult to, uh, to achieve that many people are, um, are circumventing the law entirely and just ordering abortion pills online. And so I, I think that one of the things that we need to do is, is really ask, why is it that if we have a pill that causes abortion and is very safe, why is it that we are do not have access to that? And, and I think a lot of people are not aware that um, that the Food and Drug Administration in 2000, when when the abortion pill was first introduced to the United States, burdened it with a bunch of regulations that require that you have the pill in the clinic, you have to have a relationship with the supplier. It's it's not uh, available in retail pharmacies. There's a lot of reporting requirements and training requirements all for a pill which has proven itself over the last 20 years to be completely safe. About a third of abortions are done with pills in the United States now. And yet, so we have these uh, bottlenecks that have been created by the law. They've been created by the regulations on, on doctors. They've been created by the regulations on clinics. They basically made it made the supply of doctors who can provide abortions so, so small, um, and they're about to do the, to make it even smaller with this Louisiana case, and then they require that doctors provide these these pills, which is completely something that that any medical personnel could do. That you know we are forced to go around the law once again. We're forced to go underground, and uh, so we need to ask why those things are happening, and and maybe even take action to make the pill more available. I know a lot of people are doing that around the country, um, just quietly providing pills to 
to folks who need them. Um, and, uh, you know, one part of the abortion pill, which is, uh, which is available, um, over the counter in Mexico, misoprostol is effective in 85% of cases. So, uh, people are using that. They're, they're ordering it online from, from gray market, uh, providers online. And those pills tend to actually be the correct drug. Um, so you shouldn't be scared of those, but, uh, we really need to ask why is it that abortion is already now illegal again for so many people? Well, that's uh, it's a it's a it's an interesting segue to our sponsor today uh, of today's episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Blue Chew. That's right, men. You can uh, talk to a, a doctor online and get Viagra sent to your home with only three simple questions that you're free to lie about if you so choose, and for a very low price, you can get Viagra to your doorstep. Uh, no, that's, that's not really our sponsor, but that, but that, that is a thing. <laughs> Let's, I mean, the, the contrast there that men can order boner pills online and, and, uh, you know, women, uh, can't get a similarly safe, uh, you know, option prescribed to them that would, re- you know, give them the freedom to regulate their own bodies. It's, uh, yeah, well, we're Pretty for health care for everybody, so everybody should be able to get Viagra if they yes. need it, and they should yes. be able to get abortions if they need it, and <laughs> it should be provided free through a national health system. So that's right, both yeah. and, both and. We don't, we don't need to choose. We don't have to choose. Uh, let's get to some patron questions really quickly. People should definitely pick up this book. I wanted to uh, talk a little bit more about the Irish case. You, you do, you do talk about some case studies here towards the end of the book, which are, are going to be really important, I think, in some of these conscious uh, consciousness raising sessions that I'd like for you to talk. To to us about a little bit uh, that you're doing as well. You're taking this book on tour as you have been and uh, people should reach out to you if they're interested in our conversation today and they'd like to bring you to their town or talk to you more about that. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about all of this as we weave in some of these questions. Just have a couple here. Um, from Alex, patron Alex asks, could Jenny talk about the relationship between major reproductive health NGOs and care providers like Planned Parenthood and the grassroots pro-abortion reproductive rights movement? Are they inherently a demobilizing force to be worked around, or is it possible to build relationships with local Planned Parenthood branches and members? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of great people working for Planned Parenthood, but they're kind of trapped in this this system which requires them to sort of tone down their actual desires. And if it's your employer, then you're, you know, you're not feeling. But I mean, there are are excellent folks fighting the good fight. In both Planned Parenthood and independent clinics, which I should point out, independent clinics do most abortions in the United States, not not Planned Parenthood. So if you're thinking of donating money for direct service, you know, think about the independents. Um, you know, I th- I think that when we and this happened with also with the um, with the movement in the '60s, the reform movement, when we make clear demands as a movement. And, and the grassroots, it creates space for Planned Parenthood to be more radical. Um, and so, and, and for folks within it to speak out, because of course there are debates about how to approach these things within all of these organizations and NGOs. I, you know, is it an inherent, is it inherently more, um, more conservative? Yes. I think that's right because, uh, they are dependent for funding on essentially rich people who, you know, who are not the grassroots, who are not trying to figure out how to create women's freedom for the most part. They're trying to, you know, help the unfortunate and, and they have very, you know, 
sort of a, a lady bountiful approach to to the movement as opposed to us. We're trying to fight for our freedom. So so I think there are inherently more conservative, but I think that if we keep making our demands and making it clear that it's more popular to demand full um full abortion rights uh paid for through a national health care system, um that they will be forced to come along. And uh, that has been the history uh, as well. And that, that happened also in Ireland when, when the demands, when, when the nonprofits saw that these demands were popular, they were able to get on board and, and support them, um, even though they do have a tendency to be more conservative. So I, ho- I hope that answers the question. Yeah. And I think it's really important to remember, and this, this comes through in your book uh, on nearly every page, that this is a political battle. And we need to remember that every step of the way. And what I mean by that, like, I'll talk about a little brief anecdote. I was a recent past life, an academic, professional academic. Um, we talk a lot about these institutional review boards on on that in universities. Institutional review boards are responsible for sort of signing off on. You know, the uh, research design study of various things, if you're going to be studying populations or, or whatever, they, had to, they have to it's, – it's a good idea as an academic to get your institutional review board to sign off on it. Basically, it, it makes the institution responsible for uh, some of the blowback of your research rather than you personally. Um, and these institutional review boards are subjected being uh, – at, at public universities are subjected to uh, various state and federal <laughs> congressional uh, investigations. And so thing, you know, you do things like uh, you'd be very careful about what you named your studies because certain words might come up and, uh, you know, some congressperson might might seize on that word and, and look at it as, as a reason to defund the institution or or to demonstrate that these universities are bastions of communist, anti-American, ungodly thinking or whatever as they do. So, but but ultimately, that's a political question, isn't it? Ultimately, it's a question of 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 what what politicians can or cannot get away with based on the mass struggle from below that exists in that society, uh, the kind of demands that we're making collectively. And so, you know, even even like say the FDA limiting you know Plan C, the abortion pills. I mean, they're responding to perceived, rather real or illusory, who knows, perceived political pressures that will be brought to bear on their institution, on their jobs. Uh, should they, you know, go along with what other countries like France have been on board with for quite some time? And so ultimately, these are these are political questions, um, not to be reducible to kind of these, you know, overly technocratic institutionalist uh, approaches. Do you broadly sort of agree with that? That's sort of the thing that I, I took from your book the most. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we can broaden the debate um, very quickly. And I think it's already happened. Um, we've seen the, uh, you know, basically the entire, all of the uh, presidential candidates on the on the Democratic side are mouthing that they're uh, that they're for more abortion rights, um, including you know this New York Times survey incredibly is talking about uh, seven candidates on the Democratic side saying that they supported. Um, uh, the abortion pill being over the counter. I'm not sure that they actually, in all cases, understood what that was. <laughs> but um, but that increase in the debate is, you know, I attribute entirely to the 2016 campaign where Bernie was coming out against the Hyde Amendment. That forced Hillary Clinton to come out against the Hyde Amendment. That forced the Democratic Party to come out against the Hyde Amendment, which had never happened before. 
I mean, we can change this debate. And I think, um, and I think it happened with shout your abortion. Um, you know, that hashtag where everybody was testifying about, uh, why they had abortions and that they had abortions and coming out publicly. And it wasn't just the, the, you know, tragic case abortions. It was abortions sim- simply because you didn't want to have a child at that time regarded as the selfish abortions, right? The, um, the bad girl abortions, the slut abortions. Um, if we get enough people testifying about that stuff and coming out openly about it, um, you know, both to people in their lives and publicly, that, that is extremely effective. Um, it was very effective in the Irish case. People said in in polls after the vote that um, hearing people talk about their abortion experiences was ex- was extremely powerful and and um, affected their vote. And those people were much more likely to vote for repeal. So, um, so I I think that we we really have an opportunity to change the political calculus. And then those politicians who want to grandstand about it um, will be much more hesitant to do so, right? They'll be much more hesitant to take uh, take issue with some of the things that we're demanding um, just because we have changed, changed the debate. And um, there are promising signs. A lot more people say that they are for people to have rights to abortion for any reason. Um, Rather than you know some of these some of these things in the polls where well what what if it's rape what if uh, there's cancer what you know this kind of thing um, so a lot of people are just tired of that of that equivocating and they see that you know we really have to have abortion rights f- for everybody and f- and for whatever reason and then we have this wonderful idea you know we've been fighting for forty years to get rid of the Hyde Amendment, what we really need to do is get national health care for everybody and include all abortion and birth control under it. That's much more inspiring to me than once again trying to, you know, get rid of this terrible law that restricts federal funding for abortion. So, um, you know, I think we need to start going for the the really the big, the big demands. Um, and that's one of them. I mean, there are tons of other countries that have abortion provided through their national health care system. It's just not a big deal. And, you know, Canada has it. Um, it's just, uh, it's an obvious demand and we need to, we need to be making it uh, very clearly right now. Yeah. Yeah. In Bernie's words, if Canada can do it, you know. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> I was just flailing my arms. I know you all can't see that, but that was important for the Bernie impression. So <laughs> it's, a, it's what you characterize in your book as this movement from from offense to defense. And we've been stuck in this defensive posture. And I think, you know, I mean, it sounds sort of banal and obvious, but the most important thing for moving away from a defensive posture is to recognize that you are indeed in a defensive posture. And I think yeah, it's and easy I, to, to, to not see that, to, that to be obscured. And the the key is consciousness raising. Would this would this change affect you? Would it help you? If it wouldn't, then let's go for something that will. And that's um, one of the things that we're in National Women's Liberation, my group. We're um, asking people to do study groups around this book, both um, this book, Without Apology: The Abortion Struggle Now, and my other book, um, Birth Strike: The Hidden Fight Over Women's Work. And we're working on a. We have a study guide for birth strike, and we're working on a study guide for without apology that has consciousness raising questions. You can, you can mix and match, do study questions, consciousness raising questions, and um, so we're we're urging people to contact us to get uh, to get that. Um, 
And, you know, let's just let's start changing, changing this debate and really demanding what we want. I mean, we already have a pretty extensive movement providing abortion pills uh, quietly underground. Let's let's start making some of that stuff public and see what, you know, see what the law says. Um, Let's uh, let's start being a little bit more um, uh, aggressive about about how how are we going to how are we going to win this, what we really need. Um, and what we really need is not just to keep Roe from being overturned because Roe has been so eroded that there's, there's not much there left to overturn. There is some, but we are in a, in a situation where a lot of people can't, can't afford and cannot access abortion already. So we need to start uh, moving towards a much freer system where we all can have dignity and the health care that we need. Right on, right on. One last question, and this is going to give us an opportunity to to give people some really actionable kind of uh, discussion points on this. And uh, Brad, this comes from patron Brad, good, solid socialist, a very brave, very brave man here. Uh, It's clear he hasn't had an opportunity to read the book yet. You you, you touch on this in the book. But but I myself have fallen prey to this type of thinking and argumentation as well. So I'll throw myself out there, put my neck on the line. Uh, He asks recently or comments. I have shifted my approach when talking to hardcore anti-abortionists. I now focus mainly on reducing abortion. Uh, Let's say – so basically what he does is he he argues that we need to have expanded access to family planning services and free contraception because after all, women mostly don't get abortions at places like that. They mostly do you know, perfectly – uh, normal, uh, things like getting free contraception, you know, things like pap smears. That's the argument, you know, one of the things cancer prevention is big in Planned Parenthood facilities. Uh, and he said that takes away their claim of having moral high ground and it could potentially shift some of their focus towards one that doesn't violate a woman's right to choose. But he also is very concerned about this approach. Uh, he asks, does it concede too much in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, it depends who you're talking to. And I think it's a very good way of developing a sense of whether the person has a genuine objection to uh, to abortion, sort of a religious objection, or whether it's about controlling women, because w- feminists want better birth control, too. We want birth control for men. We want to be able to, I mean, abortion is expensive, and, and uh, it's much better to not get pregnant, right? So if, you know, we, but we need abortion as a backup, obviously. But if if somebody's position is um, is that they want to reduce abortion, you know the best way to do it is to put a bunch of money into birth control. And if they want to reduce late abortions to make sure people can get abortions as soon as they want them and aren't don't have these obstacles of cost or having to go to another state to get it, um, and if they're genuine about that, then then they will be convinced. If if the subtext is really about uh, making uh, you know keeping control of women and, and, uh, or even possibly about, uh, worries about the white birth rate, you are not going to get very far with those arguments because the reality is that, um, you know, that that's, they don't, they don't want women to have control through birth control or abortion. So, um, but you know, let your conscience be your guide on, on, on making arguments to individual people who are against abortion. I think, you know, you know the person better than than uh, than I do. So it's it's just like, what can you do? But we should remember that individual people being against abortion is not the source, the main source of power for the anti-abortion movement. Although it's 
it is the troops. They, uh, they are extremely well-funded, and there are a lot of other religious, um, you know, closely held religious um, beliefs that do not get funding. Like, for example, Catholics, by doctrine, should be against the death penalty, and are. There is a strong anti-war strain in Catholicism, for example, that, you know, but you don't see those people getting big old piles of money from the state to uh, to create create <laughs> yeah. centers all over the state to talk about how war is wrong. I mean, you know, this is why they're powerful. So people have a lot of different views on stuff, but it is not the main reason that we are having these fights. The main reason we are having these fights is that the uh, employing class and the and the uh, elite of this country want us to have more babies and the and they don't want to pay for it and the best way to do that is to force us to force us to have kids when we don't want to so that's um, that's really what's going on but I you know it, it's good to have these arguments and sort of and sort of dig at why you know what is the goal here is the goal to have fewer abortions if the goal is to have fewer abortions what it, what is your objection to a public health system or a national health system that provides birth control to everybody. Um, you know, how can that, how can that be consistent with your view? And then it's always good to point out that throughout our history, people have gotten abortions. There is not any way that the law is going to change that. The question is, are they going to be safe done with, you know, uh, medical technology that is safe or are they going to be done, um, unsafely underground people you know drinking bleach or uh uh taking unsafe drugs i mean it, that that is that is the question is how do you want this to happen because individuals will um will control their destinies in this way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right on right on i could talk about this for many more hours but we've got to let you go thank you so much for joining us today the book is without apology the abortion struggle now that's out from verso books in the jacobin series the uh, book that we chatted about last time you're on is birth strike the hidden fight over women's work uh people should also check out the the piece the pamphlet that you it's a book i guess that you authored with co-authored with labor notes called how to jumpstart your union um and reach out for sure to both jenny and or the national women's liberation a uh, group to to talk about a consciousness raising session in your hometown or your college campus or wherever you find yourself. Thanks so much, Jenny Brown, for joining us. Give us a quick pitch for one of those consciousness raising sessions. Yeah, I mean, so womensliberation.org is how you can get in touch with us. Just hit the contact button. And um, we have a, uh, a study guide there for the birth strike book, and we're developing one for the abortion book. You can download those. Um, and basically... It's a way of really getting to all of the conflicts and difficulties we have around birth control, abortion, and healthcare, um, no, with no filter, just really talking to each other about what we want, and then figuring out who's benefiting from from us not getting what we want, um, and that often leads to ideas for action. So that is the that's the basic thing about consciousness raising. Yeah, I'd love to see that in every community and certainly on every college campus where neoliberal feminism oftentimes prevails, even among people who sort of consider themselves to be quite radical. So much is uh, sorely needed, I should say. Thanks so much for joining us, Jenny. Thank you so much. Thank you.